Turn your Bibles tonight to Revelation chapter 2. Pick up in verse 12. The fifth of our series in the seven churches of Revelation. The fourth church, the fourth church period, the church at Thyatira. Again, as we look at this particular church, this, the rest of them will all move from the time that they're really evident in church history to the time of tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. And so, as we've seen already, the elements of these particular churches are found all throughout church history, but they're particular to this particular group, this really the church of the Middle Ages, so it picks up where we left off last time, continues uh, on for a good solid nearly thousand years, really, uh, to about the time of the Reformation, um, but is very definitely evident in the world today, and we're going to see that in a major, major, major way. It's a pagan church, and it is a pagan church for a couple of reasons that are important in our day and time. Because in the world that we live in today, probably nothing causes a greater problem to the church than immorality. Uh, it is the source of grave destruction in marriage, grave destruction in our young people. It is the driving force behind abortion. It is the driving force behind homosexuality. It is the driving force behind a vast majority of the sinful behaviors that occur in our world today. And when the church becomes infected with the same immorality that is in the world, the church definitely loses its savor, loses its salt, loses its ability to be light to the world because the world then looks at the church and says, why should we care? Because the church is insignificantly different than the world. And as you listen to the conversations of people who do not know the Lord, one of the common retorts is, why would we want to bow to the morality supposed of the church when the church's divorce rate is the same as the world's divorce rate? When the church's rate of adultery and other forms of immorality is the same as the world's, why would it matter? When there are churches that no longer stand on the truth of God's word and yet declare themselves to be a Christian church and they not only tolerate but then propagate immoral behavior, homosexuality specifically, why be a member of that church? Because it's just like the world. And so this particular church, this is the longest of all of the letters to the churches. Uh, it is the most pointed to all the churches. And so as we dig in at, excuse me, verse 18, and we'll go down to verse 29 tonight. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. And Lord, we really look at our world and we wonder when it will be that you'll take the church home. God, that there is just such rampant sin 
uh, even in the church, Lord, to the shame of the church. We pray that this church, we as the body of Christ, would be different than the world. That we'd stand for righteousness, Lord, that we would not get caught up in the ways of the wicked. Lord, that we would not stand, that we would not sit, that we would certainly not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. And so, Lord, we give you tonight, we pray that you'd speak to us through the wonder and the majesty of your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And to the angel of the church at Thyatira write, and again, remember that the angels are the pastors. They're really messengers. The translation there transcends time. These things says, notice the full title, the Son of God. There's only one Son of God. There's always only been one Son of God, so we know exactly who's speaking. And this is, in effect, the Lord Jesus himself again saying, look, listen up. For these things says the Son of God, whose eyes are like the flame of fire, his feet like fine brass. And he goes on, for I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works... The last are more than the first, but nevertheless, one fairly lengthy sentence of commendation before the condemnation comes. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and so the picture is actually quite clear here. She calls herself someone who speaks for God. She calls herself someone who is associated with God. She self-identifies, as we would say in our day and time, as someone who's a Christian. Someone who declares that what they're doing is honoring to the Lord. And as we progress, I want you to think on that very thought. Because our world is filled with people who self-identify as Christians. But there is zero evidence that they're actually God's children. And in fact, when you look at their life and you look at how they live, you would find them to be just as heathen as someone who does not know the Lord. And so this process of self-identification has been a problem for a very, very, very long time. This is not something new. This didn't pop up in the last 15 or 20 years, as some would purport to, to put forth to you. This is something that's very old. Someone claiming to be one thing, and yet by their actions being another. To teach... And to seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. So very similar to the last church. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality. And she did not repent. I want you to notice what follows. Some people have been very vehement with the words spoken to me specifically, but to anyone who dare associate 
sexually transmitted diseases, the AIDS virus, the rampant problems that we have with teenage pregnancy and abortion with sexual immorality. God does that, and he does it here. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed. Why? Because she didn't repent. Repentance, again, is not I'm sorry. Repentance is I've had a change of mind that leads to a change of heart that leads to a change of attitude. Committing adultery with her into great tribulation. And unless they repent of their deeds, and notice the plurality there, her sin has affected now a generation. Her false prophethood has affected an entire generation. People believing the lie. Saying, look, what's wrong with that? And there are an awful lot of churches, unfortunately, that will not call this sin, sin. Have no problem with people living together that are not married, producing children, pretending to be a household. There's an awful lot of the church that finds no problem with that. God finds a problem with that. He's very clear on the subject. Unless they repent of their deeds, I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan. Now, I I don't know how you respond to that when the deeds that you're undertaken in your life have been associated with Satan himself, that it's satanic in its origin. Why is someone who professes to be a Christian, that wouldn't bother you, But in this case, there's an awful lot of people. It doesn't bother them. They're perfectly okay living in that lifestyle, which is clearly contrary to God's Word. As they say, I will put on you no other burden. He's saying, look, you, you guys are not associated with that particular group, but there are those who are. But hold fast to what you have until I come. We, we use the biblical term perseverance of the saints. We, we have to hang on. We have to stand fast. And we have to do all, as Paul said, to stand. Standing's not easy in our world, amen? It's pretty tough at times. And notice, and keeps my works until the end. And I will give them power over the nations. You realize that ultimately you're going to rule and reign with Christ. And in that ruling and reigning with Christ... You're going to have power over these things. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. This is speaking really specifically to the nation Israel, but to all those who are tribulation saints on this earth. It won't be a soft rule when Jesus comes again. It's going to be a hard and fast rule of complete righteousness. For that time in the millennial reign, righteousness is going to rule. It's going to reign. 
And there, there won't be an opportunity for you to sin. It would cost you your life to do so. For they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel. As I have received from my Father, and I will give him in the morning star. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So in this very long, drawn out letter, this false church, this pagan church, this patronizing church, this church that finds it necessary to make friends with the world. An awful lot of Christians, that is their existence today. They find it necessary to patronize the world, to make the world the patron saint, if you will, of the church. That we want to be so relevant that we actually become biblically irrelevant. That in trying to be like the world and be relatable, we use that phrase, relatable or relevant, that we actually misrepresent who God is. When pastors can stand in the pulpit and use vulgarity, use terminology that ought not be said in a bar, much less in a church, when we can begin to try and make church palatable to the world in that sense, we have transgressed and stepped over the line. Because God is holy, and He desires holiness from His people. And so this church is one of those churches that had gone all the way over the line. And as we break this down tonight, we're going to find a society that was about as debauched as one could get. Interesting thing that was going on in that particular area of the world, it was kind of a trade center, and it was home to what we would call trade unions, trade guilds in that time. Not gill as in gill, but guilds with a U in it and an ILD, guilds. They had a lot of trade guilds. And in fact, in order to do business, you had to belong to a trade guild. And in this case, it was a whole lot like maybe the 1930s when most of the unions in this country were run by the mafia. And it was a very, very similar situation. You either belonged to the trade guild so that you could uh, participate in whatever it is that your business was. If you were a dyer of fabric, uh, you would belong to the fabric guild. If you were a goldsmith, the goldsmith's guild. If you were a butcher, a baker, or a candlestick maker in like terms, you would belong to a trade guild. Here's the deal, though. To exist in the city of Thyatira, you had to pay, in essence, a temple tax to do business in the city and to give part of your earnings to the pagan church. That was how you stayed in business. And so rather than moving, rather than standing for God, the church compromised and said, you know, look, as long as my paycheck is bigger, as long as I've got a few more perks to go along with what's going on in my life, I am perfectly okay with compromising this way because it's in my best financial interest to do so. When you put finances over godliness, you're in a very, very grave situation. When money becomes more important than God, more important than His holiness, His name, we're in trouble. And there are churches that that is true. 
Thyatira was a center of wool dyeing, actually, and you may remember Lydia, uh, whom Paul led to Christ there in Acts 16. She was a dyer of fabric, a dyer of wool, uh, and she was from this town, from Thyatira. She was a seller of purple goods, specifically, which would have been uh, the royal fabric. That was the color that the that royalty wore during that day and time. And so, though there was a significant Christian family that existed in that city, a large percentage of them were completely compromised to the world. It's our place in the world to be different. Amen? And some people have a problem with the church being different. And and I don't really quite understand why that is when we understand what we have been bought and paid for with. Because we've been bought and paid for with the precious blood of the Lamb. It it is the blood of Christ that has washed us and cleansed us from all unrighteousness. It costs God his Son and Jesus his life to purchase us back from that debt. And what he asked us in return was to go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples. For us to be salt for us to be a preservative in the world, for us to be light, a sterilizing agent in the world that comes against the darkness. Interesting fact of physics. We think about light and darkness as uniquely uh, one or the other, when actually all darkness is is the result of no light. That's all it is. It's the absence of energy. That's all it is. So if there's any light, there's light. If there's no light, it's dark. And so if we live in a dark world and we stop being light, guess what's happening? Darkness is settling in. It's the absence of light. God was talking to them. God was speaking to them. And basically he has a couple of Particular characteristics here that we can look at. These things says the Son of God. This is God talking to you. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His insight, his anger, his holy attitude. We have a tough time sometimes of thinking of God having an attitude. Amen? God actually has an attitude. He hates sin. It destroys people's lives. He hates it. God actually hates sin. He doesn't kind of sort of tolerate sin. Well, you know, I just know how they are, so it's all right. No, God hates sin. He's always hated sin. You go back to the Garden of Eden, what's the problem? Amen? You see it? What's the original problem? It's sin. It's willingly transgressing what God has said we should not do. And so the Lord is very anti-sin. He is not so pro-people that he gives up his hatred for sin. He loves us with an undying love, but he still hates sin. We have to keep both those things together. You cannot separate out the love of God and say that the love of God demands that he abandon his holiness. Do you get it? God remains forever holy. Even though he has eternal love for his creation, he still is eternally holy. And so he has to act in righteousness. And when people begin to go the opposite direction from God, he's forced to deal with us and that sin. 
He's got no choice. That's why Paul said, What then? Shall we go on sinning that his grace might abound? He answers his own question. He says, Absolutely not. The problem here was those eyes of fire didn't penetrate anything because the people didn't care. They couldn't care less. So in that insight, in that attitude, the adulterous nature of the church didn't even phase them. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever pondered your own shortcomings in the Lord. I do that upon occasion. It's actually a very good and healthy thing. I have pondered my own shortcomings, and they make me very upset. I look at my life and I go, man, God should just barbecue me and get me off the planet and save everybody else. I think that every once in a while. You probably do too if you've been walking with the Lord for a while. You just look at your own life and go, man, God is still suffering along with me. But make no mistake, He sees everything. Not our little silly plans that we concoct to hide our foolish, sinful behaviors. God is not fooled by those little lies, those subtle little actions that we undertake to try and get people to think, hey, you know, I'm just right on with Jesus. The Lord sees absolutely every bit of that. And so when you engage willingly in sinful behavior, you are begging for God to spank you. Why? Because his word says he chastens those whom he loves. And if he does not chasten you, you're not even one of his. And so when you think you're fooling God, and you know you're not, and you know that he sees, the only other outcome is for his holiness to judge your actions. And he's going to make it difficult for you to sin. Sinning should not come easy to the body of Christ. It should be very hard. And in this case, in this church... They were so immersed in it that the corrective measures of the Lord didn't even get to them. We call that having a hardened heart, amen? To where all of a sudden your heart is just, I don't care. And you probably all have met somebody like that. Maybe at one time they were walking with the Lord and all of a sudden they've gone off the deep end and they, you talk to them and it's like you're talking to a brick wall. I don't yeah, I believed that when I was twelve and I don't care anymore. Yeah. That person is heading to a whooping. Seriously. Because God loves us. In this case, the compromise was twofold. It was immorality for the sake of doing better business. Think of what sells product today, largely. Immorality for the sake of doing more business. It's the number one sales tool, by the way. That is the one thing, sexual immorality, that is used more often than anything else. And I challenge you, if you have TV... I'm not suggesting that you sit there and just suck it all in all day, every day. But I am suggesting to you, just kind of take a little glance and and look at the content, the subtleties very often that are in those commercials trying to sell you something. 
It's like there is almost nothing that's being sold on television that is not being forced into that category of immoral behavior as the trigger to lay hold of someone's mind. That was the problem in Thyatira, and it was big business. Verse 19, the righteous judge kind of comes on the scene here, and he says some good things about them. I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, your patience. As for your works, the last are more than the first. You realize there in Second Corinthians chapter 5, that the Bible says that one day every last one of us is going to stand before the judgment seat of God. Amen? If you don't know that, you should know that. That's the Bema seat. That's the judgment seat where the righteous will be judged. This is not the great white throne judgment where only the damned will be judged. That happens at the very end of the book of Revelation, chapter 19. That's the second death. That's where death and hell, all that are in it, are, are coughed up, spit up, and Jesus, the righteous judge, says, What have you done with my, my price paid for your sin? Have you received it, accepted it? And when they say no, they are eternally cast into the lake of fire. That is a different judgment. There is a judgment that you're going to go through when you get to heaven, and you're going to stand before God and give an account for everything that you've done in this life, in, in the body that you currently inhabit. Every word, every thought, every deed. And it is on the basis of that judgment that you will either receive reward or lack thereof. You're still going to get into heaven. You know, some people are going to have like one tooth of a crown. You know, other people are going to have stacks of crowns. You know, some people are going to have like a crown and a half. But you're going to be rewarded. And those crowns then ultimately will be thrown at the feet of Jesus because nobody in his presence is worthy to to wear a crown, save him. But you will be judged. And their judgment really is primarily for your good works. You should have some good things to be judged for. And this church, even though a lot of it was corrupt, there were still some good things it was going to be judged for. Those deeds, those, those works that we undertake. Can I tell you that faith without works is dead? And in fact, Scripture says that indeed, as James rightly declared, I will show you my faith by my works. Nobody can tell you, well, you know, I'm just full of faith, and nothing happened from that faith. If you are full of faith, you should also be full of good works. You should be full of service. You should be full of life. There should be something that comes out of us if we're really God's kids. It's not some neutral observer standpoint. A lot of Christians treat their walk with the Lord like that, like you can be a neutral observer in this world. You cannot be a UN neutral observer in the world. Jesus said you were either for me or you were against me. There's two sides, one or the other. And so the basis of being for him, in essence, that's where the crowns come in. You're either going to be, you know, you're going to be the private in the Lord's army, or you're going to be a a five-star general in the Lord's army, or someplace in between. You're either going to receive very little and get in, or you're going to receive a whole bunch of crowns for the things that you have done in this world. Not thought, done. Not prayed about, done. Not pondered, done. 
Not gotten someone else to do. You did them. Christians are supposed to be doers of the word. Not hearers only. This church was a bunch of hearers. They may have even had relatively solid doctrinal understandings of biblical Christianity. But it went no further than that. It was all up here, it never got here, and it sure never got here. They were concerned with the things of the world. What the world thought, what the world did, how the world acted, and what the world could possess. And so he says to him, look, you have love. What does First John say? God, in fact, is love. Christ in you. Or in this case, a satanic. No idea. Whatever it is. I may be over there shortly. The first fruit of the Spirit is love. Amen? And then it's joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and all those things. Amen? And in fact, actually, the way that sentence actually reads in the original language is the fruit of the Spirit is actually love. And everything that follows after that is actually a subcategory or a subcharacteristic of love itself. Love is long-suffering. Love is joyful. Love is peaceable. Love is kind. Love is faithful. It's all actually part of love. If we're really God's people, then we're going to be loving. That's what we're supposed to be. He goes on to say there's service. That's ministry, folks. Ministry is service. Jesus made it very clear. He who among you desires to be great in the kingdom must become the servant of all. Amen? There's no, there's no path around that. Greatness in God's kingdom is service. It's sacrifice. It's sacrificial service. In addition to that, they had great faith. And genuine faith is not something that's just up here. A lot of people, you ask, ask any, I challenge you. It's a great question, a good intro to share Jesus with people. Do you have faith? And then ask them how that faith is real to them. Because faith, according to the book of Hebrews, is substantive. It has substance, and it is also evidentiary. There are evidences of that faith. Amen? Substance of things hoped for and yet not seen. It is the evidence of Christ in us. They had faith, but it was real faith. It's that James 2:17 and 18, faith that results in good things coming out of your life, their life. Goes on to say their perseverance. It's often called long suffering in the Bible. Amen? We talk about perseverance. That's the ability to suffer long, be kind while doing it, and still get something done. Think about it that way. Suffer long, be kind while doing it, and still get something done. A lot of people can suffer long, but they're not kind while they do it. And they don't get a thing done. They basically whine and complain and while they're suffering. They bellyache while they're suffering. 
I was just talking today to a dear brother who actually has a business in, in Israel. And you talk about long-suffering and persevering and still trying to share Christ in a, in a predominantly Jewish world. And all the stuff that's going on over there is, it, it just takes absolutely every bit of who they are to maintain some type of relationship with the Lord so that people can see Christ. It is not easy. It is hard to persevere. It's hard to bear up under that pressure. To endure that great pressure for long periods of time and to really reflect Christ while you're doing it is the picture. And then it says their last works. And this is something I've been getting a baptism by fire in the last couple of weeks. I can tell you there's a lot of things going on in churches. And the bigger the church is, the more stuff that's going on. The question is, is it of God? Is it something that God actually ordained and God wants to have happening in that church? Or is it just biz work? Is it something to just simply attract people? The question here is, does it actually have any kingdom value? And again, I think softball teams can have a kingdom value. I think your bowling league can have a kingdom value. I think, uh, you know, barbecues, definitely with the right meat, have kingdom value. <laughs> Pecan pies absolutely have kingdom value. You, you can have kingdom value in virtually anything. However, there are a lot of churches that are just simply busy with no kingdom value whatsoever. You would not know the difference between those ministries of the, quote, church than someone else's social club because Jesus is mentioned in neither of them. There is no evidence that it's of God. It's just something to do. When the church becomes a social club only, and it loses its savor, when the church loses its salt, when we stop producing light into the world, we've lost mission focus. We're no longer focused on the mission. We're focused on something else. We should want to reach out to more people. We should want to increase in good and godly works. And so here he says, look, you're doing some of these things well. But I want you to know the, look at the the scope of what's being said here. There's basically one long sentence that talks about the good. And the whole rest of all of these verses is, you guys are a mess. I don't want you to be bummed out tonight. So We need to be really careful. Wherever we are in the body of Christ, that we're doing what God wants us to do, not simply enacting you know, some church plan. I'm reading a book right now, Storm, by Jim Cimbala. And I'm probably, I don't know, close to halfway through it, something like that. It's amazing to me how many things get started in the church without prayer. How many things are not supported in prayer. How many times you can get people to come to almost anything that has food involved. Amen? I'm just saying. Not picking on anybody. But I'm telling you, if we have food involved, the whole church shows up. But if it's to get together to pray... 
Ouch. And yet, Jeremiah 33.3 says, Call on me. Call on me. Dial me up. And I will show you great and mighty things of which you do not know. It doesn't say seek out a church, a growth event planner. It, it doesn't say start some new program. It says call on me. You see, that's how we test and see whether it's of the Lord or not, is by calling on the Lord. It's not by just being well organized. It's calling on the Lord. This church didn't call on the Lord. They just did whatever came their way. Very busy. The trouble here was basically the tolerance of sin. And so he switches over from the commendation of the one sentence to the condemnation of the rest of our passage tonight. And nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Boy, I'll say a few things. That you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, she, she claims to speak for God. That's what a prophetess does. To teach and seduce my servants. In other words, she was actually allowed in church settings to come and be a mouthpiece purportedly for God and to draw away people who were actually supposed believers. That's a mess. And can I tell you, that still happens in churches today. Now, it may not, and I want to make a strong differentiation here. Not necessarily a woman. Could very easily be a man that does this as well. We call them charlatans. We we call them false prophets. We we can see them very frequently on some of the religious channels on television, whose sole goal is to draw people who have a genuine walk with the Lord into their little club that they have, where when you send in enough money that they'll pray for you. Uh, when you you join their little group. Somehow you're going to receive blessing, promising things that God has not promised his people. God's not promised to make you wealthy. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that. God hasn't promised to make you healthy. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that. God has not promised to heal every disease. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that you're going to be healed of every disease. You have absolutely zero ability to tell God how you're going to live your life. He's master. We're slave. He allows things into our lives that sometimes we don't like and don't want. But in this case, she seduced the servants of the Lord, my servants, to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And so again, it becomes quite clear the tolerance of sin was the issue. This was a known woman. This wasn't somebody who kind of crept in by stealth. This was somebody, that's Jezebel. Right there. Right in that chair, that's her. They knew who it was. And they tolerated it. They not only allowed it, but they actually gave her a place to do her work, so to speak. And it appears for one reason. 
that there was financial benefit to do so. That it benefited the church, probably financially is the picture here, for her to be there. Now, whether that meant they got extra cuts of meat from the temple, or whether that meant that there were people in the trade guild who would give more money because, hey, we go to Jezebel's church. Boy, you should see what we do. I'm trying to be careful here not to be critical of any particular group or movement or anything else or to say that anything, one thing is necessarily right nor wrong. But I am saying you can spot a Jezebel ministry because the focus is no longer Christ. It's something else. It's not about winning people to Jesus. It's something else. And it usually begins to grow rather exponentially. Tolerance in this way, it's, just, it's, a, it's a concept that, that yokes with compromise. And when the body of Christ compromises, we lose our ability to speak into our culture. We lose our ability to speak into our families. You know, I, I get asked very frequently uh, on this particular subject, you know, what do I do? You know, my kids are going sideways. They're doing this or they're doing that. They're going this way. They're going that. It's not godly. And very often after 15 years of raising their children in sin, they wonder why their kids have a hunger for sin. Where there's been complete compromise. No, don't smoke dope, don't drink, don't, do in, don't sleep with your boyfriend, but the parents not only have done such things, but are still hanging out with people who do, or maybe even engaging in those things themselves. And they wonder why the next generation, because Scripture paints the picture that the generations that are succeeding, the ones that are here now, are always worse than the ones before, for the most part. Because sin has a tendency to just kind of take over. You want to see that in action? Look at our country. Look at our country. Think of what was going on in the 1940s and 50s. Right after the Second World War, Korean War comes along just 10 years later. And you look at our world at that point in time, compared to our world today, and especially the United States of America today, and you see the effect of Jezebel. It's clear. It is so clear. Ten years after the Korean War, you have the mid-1960s. And what was the mid-1960s known for? The sexual revolution. Amen? That's what it was known for. It was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That was the mantra of the 60s. And that poured over into the 70s. And then tolerance began in the 70s. And from the 70s until now, it has done nothing but get worse. Do you realize the AIDS virus did not exist in the 1970s? It didn't exist. It was not discovered until the 1980s. And look where we are now. Worldwide, 285 million people with the AIDS virus. One in three women will have some form of a sexually transmitted disease in their lifetime now today. 
That's tragic. Why? Because we tolerate sin. Because we're teaching our 10-year-olds how to have safe sex. That's not an exaggeration, by the way. That is what's happening in the public school system. That's what's happening. That's Jezebel at work. Just because somebody claims something to be true, and you hear these things all the time, well, you know, that kids are going to do that anyway, so you just you need to teach them how to do it right. That's like saying there's a right way to play Russian roulette. You've got to always spin the chamber this way. And by the way, never play Russian roulette with a semi-automatic magazine-loaded handgun. Because one and done is what's in there. But it's the same deal. Well, you've got to do it right. You know, there's a right way to do this. Can I tell you, there's no right way for the church to be engaged in sinful behavior. There isn't. And unless we're willing to stand on that truth, then the world's losing light. The world's losing salt. You know, there's all kinds of stuff that's being floated as truth out there. Jesus was a polygamist. Anybody heard that one? I have. It's been on the Discovery Channel. Jesus was married not only to Mary Magdalene, but to a couple other ladies and had children by all of them. It's floated out there as truth. Doesn't mean it's true. And in this case, you had to belong to a trade guild, or otherwise you'd starve to death. Just because somebody says it's true doesn't mean it's true. What God's Word says is truth. In this case, this type of behavior was associated with idolatry. Well, people liked it. It was good idolatry as far as they were concerned. It was idolatry that fit the, the social standard of the day. It's a good example of modern inclusiveness, isn't it? Tolerance. Tolerance for sin. Tolerance for virtually anything except for, like the whole fight right now in Indiana. And that, and that, look at it. The world is tolerant for everything except Jesus, except God's Word. You can say anything, you can do anything, you can act any way you want except on biblical truth. That was the problem then. It's the problem today. People basically persisted in their sin. And that thousand years that this church existed, it's often been called the devil's millennium. And it, I think it's spilled over into our day and time. That, that sense that all roads lead to heaven, that everything's okay if you think it's okay. Let me tell you where it's got us. Over two million South Sudanese are dead because of that inclusiveness. Why am I saying that? Because everything's okay except biblical Christianity. Those are dead Christians. It's okay to do anything, including murdering innocent children and women, as long as you are a Muslim terrorist who belongs to ISIS. 
You see that inclusiveness, our inability to call sin, sin, and to directly confront issues is creating massive problems in our world. Because the answer to all of that is godliness. Putting away those things. Unadulterated tolerance is not biblical. It's not biblical. And anybody that tells you it is, is lying to you. Because there's a whole lot of things that God does not tolerate. Churches that live by unbiblical standards of conduct uh, are, are, are leading people down a, a primrose path. We live in a day and time, and it just drives me insane, where if it's legal, it's okay for people in the church to do it. How many people have you talked to? I've talked to literally probably thousands of people who have looked me in the eye and said, it's legal, so I can do it. But don't you claim Jesus Christ as your personal Lord? Yeah, but it's legal. I can do it. I can divorce my spouse. I can drink all I want. I can smoke medical marijuana. I can do whatever I want because it's legal. Just because it's legal does not mean it's God's will. And that's why he says in verse 21 to this church, repent. Look, I gave her time to repent of her immorality, but she wouldn't repent. It's a pretty grave indictment. You know, when God tells you, look, I'm giving you time to repent and you don't repent, you can guess something really bad is coming your way. Now, we're not sure exactly what that was, but I, I can pretty much guarantee you what follows next gives us some sense of it. In verse 22, it says, Indeed, for I will cast her into the sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. Now, do you see the correlation between sexually transmitted diseases and a lifestyle that uh, has, has created, in essence, uh, death to, to millions upon millions of people? The Roman world was racked with syphilis. It's been, it's been said that probably half of all of the Roman Caesars died, in essence, of the effects of sexually transmitted diseases. When you begin to look at your world without the lens of Scripture, you can end up in all kinds of places you shouldn't be. God's not going to endure false doctrine forever. And sin leads to death. It's that simple. Always has, always will, until the Lord finishes His work here on this earth. I will kill her children with death. Now, when I read that, I'm like, what? God is not a respecter of persons. And there are families that suffer greatly. Visiting the sins of the fathers upon the sons. It's just the consequences. It doesn't mean the kids necessarily were, were punished strictly because of the parents, but they followed the example of the parents. How many parents have led their kids down a path of destruction? 
Because, oh, we don't want to spank them. And again, I'm not for beating your children, so please don't read anything into that. I think a little encouragement of the seat may be necessary at times. Never seen anybody die from it, but I'm not encouraging you to beat your kids. But what I am saying is, when you take it the other direction, Scripture is fairly clear what will happen. You will end up with children who will be worse than the parents. Because liberty, once it's engaged in, usually has a tendency to expand its horizons. And so Jesus searches the emotions of this church. He searches the hearts, the minds of this church. And he says, your works are death. And I'm going to give to each of you according to your works. You all know it is is the truth that is that principle of sowing and reaping. Amen? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that he shall also reap. And so if you sow unto unrighteousness, you will reap unrighteousness. But if you sow to the Spirit in righteousness, you will reap righteousness. It's simple. When the church becomes the uh, purveyor of unrighteousness, you can bet that God will allow us to reap what we have sown. And if you look at our world tolerating the things that it does today, you can see it in action. I will give to each of you. I don't know how many of you are as disturbed as I am over what's going on in our nation. But it is absolutely ridiculous that we are actually debating some of these things that a very short while ago not only would not have been debatable, they would have been illegal. It wasn't until the the 1950s that even adultery was punishable by going to jail. I'm not actually suggesting that that's proper. I'm simply saying, look where we have gotten to. Could it be that the Lord's trying to get the world's attention? Just like the second law of thermodynamics says that all things tend towards decay unless they're acted on by a force that's equal or equivalent to the force of decay. In other words, unless you push it forward, it will go backwards. Nothing stays in stasis forever. Things degenerate if there's no outside force. We are that outside force by the Holy Spirit in us to push against the degradation of the world. That is our task. That is our goal. And unless we are willing to be used to intervene, I think the world's in trouble. And to he who overcomes, it says there in verse 26, that faithful remnant And I love that because God's always got a faithful remnant. There are people standing today. You all are in that category. Most of you I know stand for the Lord. But we've got to be bold in our standing in these last days. We really do. We've got to ratchet up the volume a little bit, not of the rhetoric of truth. People toss that word around. Well, it's just Christian rhetoric. No, it's not. It's actually biblical truth. And there is a huge difference between rhetoric and truth. Truth is truth because God said it is true. And when you investigate it, you will find out that 100% of the time it's accurate. It's truth. 
We need to be faithful to that truth. That's why we need to hold fast until he comes. We're holding fast to the truth. We're not holding fast to the lie. We're not holding fast to, to what the world says we need to do. We're holding fast to what God says we are because of how he made us, what he declares about us in his word. That's what makes us overcomers. That's how we end up in that category. We're not going to be overcomers if we just cave into the world. I can tell you that. You're going to overcome nothing that way. And it says, I'll keep, you keep my works until the end. You know, when we come back with the Lord, we're coming back to a world that, the, that will have been at war for seven years. You're going to start with a time of peace. It's going to transition into the Great Tribulation the last three and a half years, culminating with the Battle of Armageddon. We're coming back to that world to rule and reign in righteousness with Christ. And that will be a rule of iron. Those who attempt to sin aren't even going to make it. They're not even going to be able to sin. We're going to have that possession. We're going to take control of the, of the world. I will tell you this, and it's important for Christians to remember, the capital of the world, as far as Jesus is concerned, is Jerusalem. It's not Washington, D.C. The United States of America is not going to be the dominant world power once the Lord comes. Matter of fact, I I personally believe it will be either a non-entity or non-existent, one of the two. Jerusalem will be the seat of that power. And we know who rules and reigns there. It's going to be the king of all the universe. The Bible says he's going to put his feet down on the Mount of Olives and it's going to split in two. And he's going to be worshipped in that third temple. And I will give him the morning star. Basically, the Lord himself is going to be our gift at the end when we persevere, when we hang tough. And so it ends, let him who has ear. It means if, if you have spiritual ability to hear the word of the Lord, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Take it from perception to reception. From that which is a possibility to that which is a reality. You see, we're, we're preceded in change of attitude by change of heart and change of mind. You will not change what your hands are doing until your head and your heart have changed. And that's our call to the world. We have to be agents of change that way. And it's going to get hard, folks. It is going to get hard. You can see it coming. I've met Mike Pence. He is a tremendous brother in the Lord. And the flack he is taking for simply trying to say that it is the right of a business owner to hold a biblical standard just like you wouldn't let somebody walk in with a loaded handgun or bring in their, you know, their pet badger or whatever, that if you have a strong conviction about biblical principles, that you ought to be able to live those principles out in fullness in your life. When that is being challenged, the very concept of not just religious freedom, but freedom itself is in grave danger. 
Because if we can be locked up for preaching the gospel, what else can we be locked up for? Simply echoing the name of Jesus? Reading scripture out loud? It's going to get tough. And it's time for us to get tougher. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, so grateful, Lord, for the heart of your people to hear. Lord, I know this is a tough message. But some of your word is like this. Lord, it challenges us. causes us to take stock in our own lives, to look at ourselves introspectively. Pray that you would work in us to will, to do, to accomplish that which is your good pleasure. And Father, I pray that you would just cause us to walk with you all of our days. Lord, that there would be no wavering, not to the right, not to the left. Lord, that we would not slip back and we would not race ahead. God, but as you move, Lord, that pillar of fire goes forward, we go forward. That cloud hovers, we stay put. God, that we would be found underneath the shadow of your almighty wings. Lord, abounding in your good works, in fruitfulness for your kingdom. We love you, we praise you, we thank you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. All God's people said, Amen. I would like you to stay put for a couple of seconds. Dave, would you come up here? We're going to pray over Pastor Dave because next week he's continuing on right where we just left. Right where we left off.